Welcome to Dire Trip, where we deep dive into all sorts of spooky, horrific, or just plain weird crimes, lawsuits, and strange happenings all over the world. Without further ado, let's get into today's story. After a string of kidnappings on very young girls took place, the police were all too eager to arrest their suspect. But did they even have the right man? Was the true killer ever going to face justice? It's springtime now in a good chunk of the world. When it's calling for you, don't call for takeout, get HelloFresh instead. Their quick and easy meals make feeding the whole family easy and without a high price tag. Their new fast and fresh options are ready in just 15 minutes or even less. No need to worry if you aren't exactly a great chef either. HelloFresh's foolproof recipes arrive already pre-proportioned and only take a few steps to complete. So don't worry about prowling the grocery store for that one ingredient you need to complete your recipe. HelloFresh takes away all the hassle by delivering fresh, pre-proportioned ingredients so you have exactly what you need and helps you cut down on food waste. For today's video, I decided to try out the chicken sausage rigatoni in a creamy sauce. I can't say I've ever made anything like this before and even then it came out great. Can't go wrong with meat and pasta. The sauce came out tasting fantastic as well. HelloFresh is always determined to provide the best quality possible. Ingredients travel from the farm to you in less than seven days, so you know they're fresh. So go to HelloFresh.com and use code DIRETRIP16 for 16 free meals plus free shipping. Once again, go to HelloFresh.com and use code DIRETRIP16 for 16 free meals plus free shipping. And now, on to the content. Since the year 1979, a suspicious string of kidnappings and murders took place throughout the northern Kanto region of Japan. All of these crimes were similar enough and occurred within such close proximity of each other that the police believed they all must have been committed by the same person. But each of these cases took place years apart, sometimes even decades, and the eyewitnesses couldn't really agree on a description of the killer. Not only that, but the police were so eager to close this case that they didn't really do their due diligence in finding the right man. Let's start at the beginning. It was the year 1979, Ashikaga, Japan. This is where it all started. A five-year-old girl, Maya Fukushima, was playing out at the Yamato Shrine only a short walk from her home. She would never come home from playing that day. Her family and the police tried as hard as they could to find her, but unfortunately they would never see her alive again. Six days later, she was found without her clothes, stuffed into a large backpack out by the Watarase River. Aside from the backpack, the police had little to no leads to go on. They tried to find out who might have purchased the backpack, seeing that it was a make that was unique to a particular shop in that city. When investigating who could have purchased it and where, they found out that that particular shop alone had sold dozens of them by this point. Things would go quiet for a while, until November of 1984. This was when another five-year-old girl, a girl named Yumi Hasebe, went missing from a pachinko parlor in the same area. Similar to the previous victim, she went missing without a trace. That was until much later when her skeletal remains were found two years later in 1986, less than two kilometers from her own home in Ashikaga. One year after her body was found, the next case would go on to take place. On September 15th of 1987, an eight-year-old girl named Tomoko Osawa left her home in Ota City. She was carrying her cat to a local park to play when she was last spotted. As you can probably assume, she never came home that day. This particular missing persons case took place while the otaku killer Tsutomu Miyazaki was active, killing younger girls himself. Given that he had mentioned killing girls in the Gunma prefecture where Tomoko went missing, the police were quick to assume that he was likely the culprit. 
The Saitama police even came out to assist in the investigation. On November 27th of 1988, over a year later, her body was found abandoned by the Tone River. The police were no closer to finding their killer. This brings us up to May 12th of 1990. This was when the titular Ashikaga murder case would come to take place when the next victim, Mami Matsuda, a four-year-old girl, went missing from a pachinko parlor in Ashikaga. This time, rather than taking months or years, her lifeless body was found one day later by the Watarase River, near where the first victim was found. Much like the other victims, she was found without her clothes. This time, though, her clothes were found on the ground nearby. On these clothes, the police came to find bodily fluids, fluids that more than likely belonged to the killer. For the time being, though, all they could really conclude from the fluids was that the killer had a type B blood type. The police did all they could to find eyewitnesses who might have seen the killer walking mommy away. All over every TV channel, breaking news bulletins were taking place, urging the public to come to the police with any tips they might have that could point them in the right direction. After a search, they did find a few people from a nearby park who felt that they had probably seen the man leading mommy away that day. The people from the park testified that they saw a young girl in a red skirt walking away with a strange man and did their best to give the police his description. The descriptions they gave were, to put it likely, less than effective. One of the eyewitnesses even told the police that the killer resembled the manga character Lupin III. This case was all over the news, repeatedly broadcasting the only known details about the killer at the time, which were hazy at best. The public repeatedly came to hear these less-than-accurate, vague details about the killer over and over, painting a very specific image of the killer in the minds of the people, something that might have actually gone on to cause the public to let their guard down around the actual killer if he didn't fit the image they had in their minds. From then, the police got a profile for the type of killer they were looking for, a single man with an unhealthy interest in kids. This was not exactly the most groundbreaking development in this investigation. With the false confessions coming from Miyazaki, the otaku killer, the investigation was muddied just that much more. While they continued investigating as if the otaku killer had been the culprit, they stopped following that lead abruptly for reasons that still have not been made clear. While searching, the police became more and more interested in one certain suspect, a bus driver for a local kindergarten named Toshikazu Sugaya. Although he had no prior criminal record or any suspicious history whatsoever, the police really came to feel that this was their man. However, they continued pursuing other suspects they found suspicious for the time being. That was until December 2nd of 1991, when the police publicly stated that the DNA found on the body of one of the victims perfectly matched Toshikazu Sugaya. This was despite the fact that DNA tests were, at the time, extremely primitive in comparison to what we have today. However, it was still said that only about 1 in 1,000 people would have been a match. While these odds seem pretty okay on the surface, the population of Japan was over 124 million people at the time. The police felt that, given this was their main suspect and the DNA matched closely enough, that this was probably their guy. A few days later, Sugaya was arrested. Once Sugaya was arrested, his father, in sheer disbelief, died of shock. His mother, losing both her son and husband in one moment, preached his innocence from the very moment he was arrested. It was around this point that it was said he gave a voluntary confession, although it's debatable how voluntary it actually was, with Sugaya stating that he only confessed because the police threatened and pressured him into doing so. A year later, in 1992, Sugaya was already having his first hearings in court. He went on to plead innocent from the very beginning. 
His defense expressed doubt in the accuracy of the DNA testing at the time, and Sugaya reiterated that his previous confession was coerced. However, in July of 1993, Sugaya was sentenced to life in prison despite all of the reasonable doubts. Sugaya tried again and again to appeal over the course of the next few years, but to no avail. In May of 1996, the court decided to deny his appeals and uphold his life sentence. And then, only two months after the court upheld the life sentence, another little girl would go on to be kidnapped under similar circumstances as the previous victims. Four-year-old Yukari Yokoyama went missing from a pachinko parlor in Ashikaga herself. This time, though, the crime was actually caught on a nearby security camera. The police reviewed the footage, seeing that it showed a man speaking to the girl and gesturing as if he were inviting her to go outside. Although this seemed pretty open and shut on the surface, the footage did leave some reason to doubt as to whether or not this man really was the kidnapper, given that he left the pachinko parlor alone and Yukari didn't leave the building until several minutes later. The police were pretty shook when key witnesses from the Ashikaga murder case came to the police, saying that the man on the security footage strongly resembled the culprit that they remembered from six years back. This case was indeed very similar to the previous murders. Although Yukari was never found, another little girl going missing from a pachinko parlor in the same area fit the M.O. of the previous killer all too well. All of the cases involved young girls between the age of 4 and 8. In three of these cases, the victims went missing from pachinko parlors. In three of the cases, the bodies were found near a local river, with two of them being the exact same river. Four of the cases also happened on either holidays or weekends. Needless to say, they were all very similar in nature. The police were left with a difficult question. Was this new case being so similar to the previous cases simply just a coincidence, or did they all too eagerly put the wrong man in prison? These were actually only the cases that were definitely believed to have been committed by the same person. But in actuality, there were many other kidnappings and murders that took place in the same area that were believed to maybe be connected to the killer. Given that it really isn't known whether or not they were actually related and that there are so many of them, I'll cover each one very briefly. In 1981, a nine-year-old girl was killed when she went missing from Makabecho in Ibaraki on her way home from elementary school. In 1983, the slain body of a 12-year-old girl was found in Kiryu City in Gunma. In 1985, a three-year-old girl went missing from Moka City in Tochigi. She went missing while fishing with her siblings. She was never actually found, so this case is considered to be a disappearance rather than a murder. In 1987, a 15-year-old high school student went missing while returning home from club activities at her school in Ibaraki. That same year, a more famous case took place in which a young boy was kidnapped, with the kidnapper demanding a ransom. This is a very complicated case that I might go over in more detail another time. In 1990, a 14-year-old female student went missing from Miwa Town in Ibaraki after coming home from her friend's house. In 2002, a 9-year-old Filipino girl went missing from Toride City in Ibaraki after playing with her friend in a park near her home. And much later in March of 2017, a Vietnamese girl was killed at her elementary school only a few kilometers from where the previous, notably also foreign girl, was sighted. Her school bag was later found in the Tone River. This brings us to January of 2008. This was when our hero of the day, Kiyoshi Shimizu, started looking into the case and asking some difficult questions. You might remember Shimizu from another video of mine, the case of Shioriino. In that case, he investigated a stalking case, finding layers upon layers of police corruption and incompetence, and ended up finding the killer on his own. Well, now the police were left trembling as Shimizu was once again on their case. 
During a feature presentation on Nippon TV about the Ashikaga case, Shimizu appeared to point out contradictions in Sugaya's confession. He also pointed out problems with the primitive DNA analysis that was performed at the time, calling for a re-examination. This program went on to be broadcast multiple times, causing a small public outroar and pressuring the courts to once again re-examine the evidence. One year later, in 2009, over a decade after first being in prison, Sugaya was given one more DNA examination, which showed that he was completely innocent. It was decided that Sugaya was to be released later that year, having been in prison for 17 years for a crime that he didn't commit. To add even more insult to injury, the judge stated that, due to the statute of limitations having passed on the original cases, even if they were to find the killer now, they wouldn't even be prosecuted. There was only one case of the original five in which the statute of limitations hadn't passed, the most recent disappearance of Yukari Yokoyama. The then Prime Minister, Naoto Kan, put a lot of pressure on the police to solve that case as quickly as possible, but they never did. Sugaya finally left his cell in Chiba prison, accompanied by Kiyoshi Shimizu, the man who proved him innocent. This was a bittersweet homecoming, to say the least. Not only had Sugaya lost out on 17 years of his life, but he came home to find his father dead and his mother in bad health. She soon passed away shortly after their reunion. During a press release shortly after his release from prison, Toshikazu Sugaya said, with eyes full of tears, I just want the prosecutors and the Tochigi police to apologize to me. In response, a former executive of the Tochigi police selfishly told him, The investigation into the crime was appropriate. I don't want to remember the Ashikaga incident. The former head of the detective department, Akio Morishita, even said on his blog that he still believes Sugaya to be the true killer. After meeting extreme backlash for those remarks, he was forced to shut his blog down entirely. In October of 2009, Sugaya went to the prosecutor's office in person. This time, though, he actually got a straightforward apology for the first time. The chief public prosecutor met with Sugaya himself, telling him, I am deeply sorry for prosecuting you, an innocent man, and forcing you to serve time in prison for so many years. On behalf of the prosecution, I sincerely apologize. Sugaya, neither accepting or rejecting the apology, simply responded, Nobody should ever suffer like I did again. In 2010, Shimizu came out and said that there was strong evidence that showed that the actual true killer in the Ashikaga case had been found, with a DNA test matching the killer perfectly. A 100% match, in fact. Not only that, but new surveillance footage had surfaced of this new suspect inviting little girls to come over and sit on his lap in pachinko parlors. However, given that the statute of limitations had passed, no arrest was ever made and Shimizu was forbidden from giving the name of the killer in public. After all of this, the police never did go on to admit that the primitive DNA tests they performed were flawed. Admitting this would force them to face the fact that they had convicted other people in this same manner, with some of them even going on to be executed. Shimizu's investigations and other cases performed by this police department showed signs of deliberately doctoring of evidence in addition to instances of pure negligence. Not only were the police cruel to these suspects, they were cruel to the families of the victims as well. When Mami Matsuda's family were informed that the statute of limitations had passed and that the case was over, they requested that the police return their daughter's belongings as they wouldn't need them anymore. The police refused to return all of it, failing to give a reason. Shimizu suspects that this was because the family would have then been able to conduct their own private DNA test on the material, once again proving that the tests performed by the police were bogus. It's very likely that they didn't want yet another hit to their reputation. 
Kiyoshi Shimizu, as in the Shiori Ino case, went on to receive the Editor's Choice Magazine Journalism Award for once again exposing police corruption and misconduct. In the end, the police spent so long prosecuting the wrong man that the true criminal in these murders and disappearances has never officially been found. Given that the statute of limitations has long since passed, justice will never be served. Once again, this has been your host, Kyle. Thank you very much for listening to today's podcast episode. Feel free to look through my huge library of other stories if you found this one interesting, and be sure to be there for the next stories that come out each and every week. Have a good night.